Michael told me he was going to do everything he could to help me stay awake today because he knows where I came from a few days ago. I'd been in Australia for the last couple weeks and uh, jet lag has a whole new meaning to me now. <laughs> it's a, a whole new reality. Our son Derek uh, is in, living in Sydney uh, for a time studying there and uh, he's at a, a worship arts school, a music academy and um, he's remarkably getting to live with guys from all over the world. So this was a really cool experience because Lori and I lived in the house with them for a week while we were there. And so um, the, let alone living with college students, living with guys from all over the world was really interesting. So there's guys from France and Norway and Germany and South Africa and uh, Australia. And uh, the, the boys from Australia are from the outback areas, so they taught me how to say it right. You leave the A and the U off, and you just say, Stralia. So they said, what do you think of Stralia? I learned things about how they eat, and I was not all that impressed when it comes to hamburgers. They, uh, they have a unique habit of putting eggs on their hamburger, and uh, that wasn't a real big thing with me, but I said I would try it. And they said, oh, you got to try it with a beet, mate. Slice the beet up. Well, I thought they meant onion. No, they're talking about a root beet. And, you know, a hamburger from America is good. We should just leave it the way it is. So they tried to, <laughs> they tried to improve on that. And as I'm going around the campus, there's 1,200 students that, uh, the best and the brightest from around the world that are studying worship arts there. It was such a great thing to go into their chapel settings and to go to their services and watch these guys do what they do. Unbelievable. I just really enjoyed it. And as they're coming out of the service, Derek is introducing me to different students that were there. And different ones were saying, oh yeah, I know you, I listened to you online. I've been listening to the Revelation series. So student after student that I met were telling me that they were listening to the Revelation series. But they had a question, why don't you have it on iTunes yet? So I'm so glad Michael got that on iTunes for us. That's, that's really cool. So I found that meeting kids over in Australia with the same passion to understand the book of Revelation like we have here and people wanting to know more about the Word of God. It's not, unfortunately, in many cases or circumstances that people get to study the book of Revelation, especially verse by verse. Before we jump into it today, I want to take a minute and pray with you, but I'm just going to give you a heads up. I want to share a verse with you after we pray that will look like it doesn't really fit with Revelation, but I'll help you to understand it in just a minute. So let's pray first, and then I'm going to share that with you. Father, thank you so much for the joy of being able to lift up praise to you in song. I thank you for um, how you received praise and honor and glory through the nine o'clock service and now again through this service. And, and you're receiving praise and honor and glory through the uh, classes that are taking place downstairs because people are studying your word. So we thank you for infusing this church with people with a passion to know more about you and your nature and your character and to give you glory as a result of it. Father, the things that we're looking at, especially today, are heavy and they're deep and they require eyes that can only be given vision through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask as we open your word this morning that you give us the spiritual capacity through the power of your Holy Spirit to comprehend these words and to turn them into action. 
Father, more than anything, we ask that your spirit would brood over this room and that you would be glorified by everything that's said, by the things that are listened to, what is discerned, and by what I teach. God, we always want to teach truth, and we want to exalt you through truth. So we ask that you give us the capacity to do that, and we'll give you the praise and the honor and glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Let me take you to Romans chapter 8 and verse 33. This is what it says. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, and now Paul quotes the Old Testament, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, this is what I want you to key in on. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Do you feel like a person who overwhelmingly conquers? Let me show you the word that Paul used that he wanted you to understand that God wants you to process. Hooper nakao. It's kind of a fun word to say, so say it with me. Hooper nakao. Say it again. Hooper nakao. Now look at the definition for that. To gain a decisive victory. To vanquish more than a conqueror. Now we learned in the first part of Revelation, in the first few chapters, that Jesus said, to those who overcome, I will give him the white robe. I will give him the crown of life. He will drink from the water of life. He will eat from the tree of life. From the streams he will drink. God promised all these things to the overcomer. We learned that that word was nikao. You remember that word? It's where Nike gets their name from. The word Nike comes from nikao. Paul wrote this to remind us that through the power of Christ, you and I are hooper nikao. There is nothing that can stand against us when we stand in the power of Jesus Christ. It's a promise that we're to be reminded of. As we look at the book of Revelation during this period of time and understand that there will be believers who live through the tribulation, those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period, they will indeed need to be Hooper Nikao. You'll see why in just a few minutes as we take a look at this next set of demon army that is released from hell. The Hooper Nikao nature needs to indwell believers who live during this period of time. Because of this truth, Satan and Antichrist have complete realm over the earth during this period of time. We're about three and a half years into the tribulation where we're studying at in Revelation chapter 9. Many events have transpired. There have been plagues, there have been famines, there have been earthquakes. We're going to do a slight review of it next week. But just let me remind you of the things that have taken place. One quarter of the earth's population has died 
through one assault. There have been earthquakes all over the surface of the earth. Demons have been released from hell. And now we come into this passage in which John hears another blast of a trumpet. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, open up to Revelation chapter 9, and we're going to be starting off at verse 13 to pick up where we left off at last time. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks there in front of you, so you can follow along. It'll also be up on the screen. John hears this blast of a trumpet, and this is not a shofar. I want to point that out to you. Ron Volutis taught two weeks ago about the blast of a shofar, and that was used in Jewish tradition. This particular trumpet here that's being used is called a salpizzo, and it's what we think of today as a trumpet that might be used by the Marine Corps without the valves on it. It's a long metal trumpet, and it has reverberation tones to it. That's a salpizzo, and John hears this blast of a salpizzo. A mighty trumpet has sounded, and as a result of that, an action takes place. So let's look at this, Revelation 9.13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One sang to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. At a specific appointed time, this angel blasts his trumpet. And as a result of this, John hears a voice. The Greek is very literal here. It means one voice. It wasn't multitude. He heard a remarkable thing. He identifies the source for us and says, I hear this singular voice coming from the altar of incense. Now this had to really shock John. Here's why. As a Jewish young man, older man by this point in time, he grew up in Judaism. He knew what the altar of incense was. Understand that what God has in heaven in his temple, he instructed the Israelites to make for the temple here on earth. So when he instructed them to create an altar of incense for the temple, in Solomon's temple, for instance, there was an altar of incense, it was to mirror the altar found in heaven. So God gave very specific directions in the book of Exodus when he said, I want you to make an altar of incense one cubit wide by one cubit long. And a cubit is from the tip of your finger to the bottom of your elbow. That was a cubit by the measurement of a man's arm. So God said, I want you to make this square altar and on it you're going to burn incense to me day and night. The incense was to be an image of prayers ascending before God, specifically prayers of mercy, mercy from God. Look with me up on the screen at Exodus 31. You'll see a description of this altar of incense. This is God giving the directions. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit and its width a cubit. It shall be square and its height shall be two cubits. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides and all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around for it. It is most holy to the Lord. This particular altar in the earthly temple was located right in front of the veil that separated man 
from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. This was the last thing a priest saw once a year before he entered into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. Every day, the high priest would come to the altar of incense and light it and allow the smoke to ascend up as a constant reminder to the people of Israel that God was hearing their prayers. It was an image of his mercy. So this is so shocking to John that what had been an altar of mercy now is an altar of judgment. And he hears this voice coming from this altar. And it is shocking because formerly what God used for mercy, he's now using for vengeance. Do you have a problem seeing God as a God of vengeance? Many people do. Many people think of God as this big, loving, heavenly Father who will just forgive everyone of everything and come on in without any vengeance or wrath attached to his nature, thinking that God will just wink at our behavior. But that's not consistent with what Scripture teaches. God says, I will accept you in through the blood of Jesus Christ. You will be redeemed to me through the blood of the Lamb. God does not wink at sin. So for John to see this is very much in keeping with God's nature, understanding God is a God of vengeance. But to see it coming from the altar of mercy, that's shocking. Let me read to you, you'll see it up on the screen, Hebrews 10, 28, what God says about himself and his vengeance. The writer of Hebrews recorded this for us. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So God says, I do have a side to me which is full of wrath. And what you're about to see today is the playing out of God's wrath on earth. So specifically, there's an instruction that's given to the sixth angel. The one who has the trumpet to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. That they are bound indicates something very specific. They're fallen angels. These are not holy angels. Holy angels who do God's will who have not fallen don't need to be bound. These specifically are demons. So we see right away, God's in control over demons. He has defeated them. He's absolutely maintains them. They are free or they are bound at his command according to what he wants to happen. So you should not fear what God has already defeated. If God has defeated demons, you do not need to fear them if you stand in the power of Christ. But if you do not stand in the blood of Christ, you need to fear the demons. They are out to get you. I don't mean to scare anyone, but that is their purpose, and you will see it today. You must stand in the protection 
of God's protection through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you stand vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. So specifically, this word that's used here is deo. The word deo, D-E-O, means that they were bound in the past with an action in the future. Bound in the past with a continuing action in the future. And we see that specifically, they're bound in the river Euphrates. Now, this particular river we learned about during America's war with Iran or Iraq when we learned about the city of Babylon. The ancient river Euphrates flows around the city of Babylon. As a matter of fact, the river Tigris does as well. Now, where have you heard about those rivers before? If you've studied the book of Genesis at all, you know that the river Euphrates and the river Tigris flowed out of the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, look with me up on the screen. Genesis 2.14 says this, The name of the third river, speaking of the uh, Garden of Eden, the river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So this is an ancient river. Thousands of years it has played a role in Scripture. Where it's located today is what we call the cradle of civilization. You ask even modern-day sociologists if they're liberal at all even. They understand that man had his origination in this area that we call the cradle of civilization, this area of Medo-Persia around the Euphrates River. It's where we believe archaeologically the Garden of Eden was located. But specifically, this is also where the first sin was committed. This is where the first lie was told. This is where the first murder was committed. It's where the first grave was dug. This is where, in the first time of all humanity, the first individual stood around a graveside and mourned over death. They understood the consequences of sin. It's in this same region where God saw the wickedness of man's heart. And it's in this same place where our God promised that one day he would send a savior to redeem the world back to himself. So it's no accident that God has taken these four angels who are fallen and bound and placed them in this location. I believe it's a victory symbol to us that one day the victory that Satan had will be overturned. And we will see specifically, as it plays out here in the book of Revelation, that God set these angels apart for a specific purpose in the last days. Let's look at what that is. Verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. God has a specific timetable. He is very precise. And this is a moment fixed in time by him from the foundations of the earth. This is the only place in all of Scripture where you find this compound sentence of these specific words all put together in conjunction. Our God is being very precise. And mind you this, God is not accidental. He is doing this very intentionally, a definite hour, of a definite day, of a definite month, of a definite year, precisely timed, and you need to be reminded 
how precise our God is. Look with me up on the screen at Isaiah 46.9. This is your God speaking. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. Is our God intentional? Amen. Absolutely, he is intentional. He is very purposeful. And so to the very day and hour, he has planned the release of these individuals. For what reason? So that they will kill. In the previous lesson we looked at, in Revelation 9 in the beginning, when the demons were released from hell, we saw that those individuals were there to torment, but not to kill. The power of death was not given to them. These individuals have been given the power of death, not merely hurt as in the fifth trumpet. The word epicatino is used here, and they are specifically there to slay, outright destroy. And it's the earth dwellers, those who live for planet earth, who will be destroyed during this time. Now, if you remember back to the fourth seal, you might remember how many people were killed during that period of time? We were given a fraction. We were told a certain amount of people would be killed on planet Earth. Anybody remember that? Shout it out if you know. Go ahead, Preston. A little bit more than that. One quarter of the Earth's population. So if we have six billion people currently on the planet Earth, 1.5 billion killed in that first seal, now God says one-third of the planet's population will be killed. All of a sudden, we're to half of the earth's population killed through two judgments. When I read this, I thought back to what happened a couple years ago in the area of Sumatra when the very large tsunami struck that region. You remember that on Christmas Eve? 242,000 people killed in one hour. Take that same number and turn it into not one more zero, two more, three more, four more, five more, six more, seven more, eight more, nine zeros added to the two. Two billion people killed as a result of these angels' actions. They will slaughter in such a way that man has never known. There has never been destruction like this since the time of Noah. You are to take this very literally because Jesus did and he spoke to this issue. Look with me up on the screen at Mark 24, 21. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Jesus is not the only one who quoted this. Daniel understood this from the time of the Old Testament. Look with me up on the screen at Daniel 12.1. At that time, Michael the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress 
such has not happened from the beginning of the nations. You notice that as we're working our way through the book of Revelation, there's a repeated emphasis on numbers, sometimes very precise numbers. It's not like that in other places in Scripture. It's generalized, except in some places in the Old Testament. Here, we're given numbers, and that tells us that what's going on here are controlled judgments. These are not acts of nature. This is God determining beforehand what's going to happen on planet Earth. And the stench of death will permeate the entire planet. Can you imagine being a survivor at that time and having to deal with all the dead bodies? This is a horrible time to live. Now from this point right here, John all of a sudden leaps into a verse that just causes you to question to say, where did that come from? Look with me at verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. You have to look at that and say, what's going on here? Well, absolutely what's going on here is the release of the four angels. These four fallen bound angels now transfers into an action in which they release an army that's been held from the beginning of time. This is an ancient army that has not seen battle since the time of the rebellion against God by Lucifer. These are fallen angels, and I'll show you why I believe that to be the case. Specifically, 200 million fallen angels who joined the other four in a battle against planet Earth. 200 million. Plurally, they're listed as armies, meaning that there's the four fallen angels who will lead each a division. One leading 50 million, one leading 50 million, one leading 50 million, and another one leading 50 million. And they set out their assault on earth. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, China announced that they could put out an army of 200 million men. And it became very popular among theologians and preachers during that time to say, well, there it is right there, China, that's going to be the army that's coming from the east to launch this attack. Well, I would say after you look at Scripture today, you're not going to agree with that. There's no way this can be a human army. I believe the human army that you see is in Revelation chapter 16, not Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 is describing a force like the world has never seen. As a matter of fact, a general from the United Nations, his name is uh, William K. Harrison, who is a military strategist. He actually is a graduate of West Point, a four-star general. He died a few years ago, but he studied this intently because he was a believer. And he said, knowing what he knows about military strategy, it is impossible to think that any nation on earth or even a conglomeration of nations could put together a military force of 200 million men and put them in the Middle East. It absolutely is incomprehensible. At the height of World War II, there were 75 million people engaged in battle. It is just absolutely incomprehensible to think 200 million, especially when you see the description that's coming up. The descriptions are something like horses, but John very carefully uses the word like. So let's look at this. Verse 17, And this is how I saw in the vision the horses of those, of those and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and a brimstone 
and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. Have you ever seen a horse like that? Maybe you think you've ridden a horse like that. <laughs> I've had some throw me, but I've never seen one with the face of a lion, especially one that blows out fire. Now, back in the 70s, also, it was also very popular to say, well, what you're looking at here is modern military machinery. I won't be dogmatic and say absolutely not, but I'm going to suggest to you that because the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet are connected, and the fifth trumpet was very clearly a demon army, and this army is being led by fallen angels, that what you're looking at here is a demon army of 200 million. And the description that John is giving is saying, it's like this, but it's kind of like this. He'd never seen anything like it before. We haven't. We wouldn't expect him to. So let's break it down and look a little bit at the description of what's going on here. He said, I see that they're wearing breastplates, the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone. Well, what's, what's unique about that? The color of fire is what? Red. The color of hyacinth is deep, deep blue, the color of smoke, the color of blackness. And this last one, the color of brimstone, is sulfur. Brimstone is a yellowish gas. So what you see them wearing are the colors of hell. Every place in Scripture where you see these three colors combined together, it always is associated with hell. So you've got the color of fire, the color of smoke, and the color of brimstone. And they have heads like lions, he says, fiercely, relentlessly stalking. Now, if they're responsible indeed for killing 2 billion people, and there's 200 million of them, each one of these is responsible for killing 10 humans. If you've been to a zoo before, you know when you look in the eyes of a stalking lion that he has you in his sights, and you're very grateful that there's a cage between you and him. If you've been to a zoo and you've watched a lion or a lioness doing this, and they turn and they go back and they never take their eyes off you. That's why Peter said, Satan is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. They're very intent on their prey. So John says, it's got the head like a lion, but they breathe fire. So this is the three ways that they're going to kill. Specifically, they're going to incinerate. The smoke will choke and disorient. And then you see brimstone, which will asphyxiate, because brimstone produces a gas. As I understand it, when I look at this, John understood that he's seeing the assault of hell against earth. And when he sees this, he sees a specific result. Look with me at the next verse, verse 18. This is, as a result of their attack, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouth. One-third of the earth's remaining population. The most catastrophic event to occur since the flood of Noah. And John is a witness to this and writes it down. As I understand this, this sulfur and this fire is coming out of their mouth and their nostrils. And they emit this. And you can see why modern military people would look at this and say, well, you're looking at a Cobra helicopter or you're looking at a Black Hawk because they can fire from the front and the rear. Again, I won't say it's not. But John is giving us the best description that he can. 
And so now he gives us a new detail in verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. In, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. That is not a horse I ever want to ride. That is just downright spooky. And this emphasis is on specifically their demonic character. What they do when they are released is not go out and pick and choose and show mercy. What they do is go out and annihilate. They kill like snakes and like lions. They carry out the assault that they were designed for and they can attack from the front and from the rear. I kind of picture in my mind something like a flame-throwing dragon. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just picturing an image here. But this description, as remarkable as all this is, is not the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing about this passage is the next verse. Look and see what your fellow humans do. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. I'll just stop a minute and let that settle in. They have lived through the three and a half worst years on planet Earth. They have experienced earthquakes that have decimated mountains. The islands actually fled away according to Scripture. They have seen mass attempts at suicides. People crying out for the rocks to fall on them. The first plague of a quarter of the earth's population killed. And yet Scripture says they did not repent. Specifically, he says, they did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Is it not amazing to you how hard the heart of man can be? It is a rock defense. You think back to the time when I taught you on the book of Exodus and what God did to the Egyptians. And Pharaoh watched it personally. We saw archaeological evidence how Pharaoh lived through this period of time. And what does Scripture say about him? Nevertheless, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. The human capacity to ignore God knows no ends. The very things that took these people to the point of misery are the things they're clinging to and they refuse to repent and turn back towards God. Even just a casual reading of Revelation chapter 9 can show you the wickedness of man's heart. And John specifically lists the five sins for us just as a representation of what it's like when an individual has a hard heart. Look with me at what these five sins are. He says, first of all, they wouldn't repent of demon worship. What is that? What did Satan say when he was known as Lucifer, the bright and morning star, and he dwelt in the presence of God before the rebellion? He said, 
I will ascend and be like the Most High. I will be as God. Satan has always wanted to be worshipped. He has always wanted attention for himself. And so you see here mankind worshiping the fallen angels, and they would not repent of it. And then he says idol worship and murder and immorality and thefts and sorceries. What is that? The Greek word is pharmacia. From what we get, pharmacy. It's the use of drugs, the abuse of drugs. Now, I understand during this period of time, there'll be huge shortages on earth. I totally can picture people stealing constantly, murdering for the goods that they need to survive. So John's playing out a list for us of actions on planet earth. And he says, their pain is so intense, they're drug abusers. They will not repent of it. And they're so blind to the actions of God that they refuse to give up the very things responsible for their misery. That's how hard the human heart can be and resistant to the things of God. And you know what's remarkable about this? I believe that before the rapture of the church, before the tribulation started, these individuals had already set themselves against the things of God. Because a hard heart towards God does not happen overnight, does it? It happens gradually. It begins with a temptation, a temptation that turns to a taste. A taste leads to an action, and an action eventually turns to a rebellion. And before you know it, you have an issue in your life that has made you hard-hearted against what God is trying to do. And so you see these individuals playing out human nature, human capability to refuse the things of God. Paul wrote about this very issue. Because you are hooper nikao, you are the ones who exceedingly overcome. The reason we're warned about that is because it's very possible that you and I can develop hard-hearted issues towards our God things that we cling to and don't want to give up. And I bet in the moment I suggested that, you knew immediately what it was in your life. Everybody has something that they hold on to that they don't want to yield to God. So we stand in church and we sing, I surrender all, but we hold on to that one thing. And eventually, it becomes a rock in our heart. So this is what Paul wrote to us in 2 Corinthians 10.4. You'll see it on the screen. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. They, meaning the weapons that we've been given as followers of Christ, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every what? Thought. Because that's where it begins, doesn't it? It begins with a thought. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So that's why I taught you that word in the beginning, that you are hooper nikao. only have the power to overcome through the power of Christ. These things that become strongholds in your life by which you can become hard-hearted. And you see an example of this in Scripture today. So Paul gave us this great reminder for us that we cannot 
only exceedingly overcome, but he promised us something else because of the presence of God. Let me read this to you from Romans 8. This is a continuation of what I read to you in the beginning. We left off at verse 37, so here's where we left off. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer, hooper nikao, through him who loved us. Verse 38, here's your promise. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you belong to Christ, if you are a hupernikao, you have the capacity to overcome. But if this morning, and I speak very directly to you who do not believe yet in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not follow after Jesus Christ, you do not have the capacity to be a hupernikao. You need to be right with God first in order to overcome the forces of darkness because here's a reality. You won't hear this taught in very many places. The spiritual battle that we are up against is very real. You are either on the side of God and working for the kingdom of God or you are on the side of Satan. There is no middle of the road. You cannot be on the fence. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So you either belong to God and his purposes or you belong to the purposes of Satan. Your responsibility is to decide which side you're going to be on before you approach a time in which your heart has become so hard that you resist the things of God and you become hard-hearted. So I'm going to pray for you right now and just know this. Whether you've been here two days or you've been here two years since we started the church, I am always here and ready and willing and able to talk to you and excited to do so. So anytime you want to approach me or contact me and talk about these issues, feel free to do so. Let's pray.